Um, we have two very, very special guests and, of course, our very own staff writer, Alan McLeod. Before I introduce them, I'd like to give you guys a little bit of background about what we are talking about. Um, much has been made about the U.S. strong, the U.S.'s strong economic, political, and military ties with Israel, but far fewer people realize that the apartheid state has powerful backers in Europe as well, particularly the United Kingdom, where the conservative government under Boris Johnson is signing deals to send weapons and military training to Israel. Yet even as this is going on, a growing movement within the country is challenging the government's unwavering support for apartheid. We even saw a record number of people uh, on the streets in London to protest uh, the UK support for Israel. Um, yet even as his, uh, uh, hold on a second, I think we're over here. Uh, so chief among those in solidarity with Palestine is Palestine Action. It's a new activist group that has made headlines after occupying and shutting down a number of weapons factories in the UK, including Elbit Systems, supporting the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and aiding in Israel's bombardment in Gaza. So joining us to talk about that are Huda Amari and Richard Bernard, the co-founders of Palestine Action. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. And we really appreciate press's coverage, so we're really glad to be here. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be speaking with you guys. I feel like you guys are like real-life superheroes who are really standing up to the true villains in our society, which are the weapons manufacturers. You guys have gone to the core uh, of the issue here when it comes to the UK supporting, um, you know, apartheid Israel and its military might against uh, Palestinians. And so, Huda, could you first lay out how the UK is supporting Israel militarily, economically, and politically? Yeah, definitely. So it's no it's no surprise to people that the UK is deeply complicit with Israel's apartheid regime. Um, and for us, we often highlight how this complicity spans back over 100 years at the beginning of the Balfour Declaration, where essentially uh, the foreign minister at the time issued a declaration um, calling for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, of the indigenous population of Palestine from their homes in order to make a Jewish homeland um, in historic Palestine, which obviously meant wiping out the Palestinians from their homes. Um, and this, this complicity and support for Israel's apartheid regime just continues until this very day. And something that we highlight and focus a lot on is how um, you know, this has been going on for over 100 years, and now the UK hosts several of Israel's arms factories here in the UK, um, including Albert Systems, which is actually Israel's largest arms company, who have the audacity to market their weapons as tested, because when they bomb the Gaza Strip and harass Palestinians in the largest open-air prison in the world, um, then they use this as an opportunity to market their weapons and essentially sell these weapons onto other oppressive regimes across the world uh, to kill more civilians and harass oppressed people everywhere. And um, I, I, I think people have, have necessarily noticed that these companies are all around us building these components in our towns and cities. So we try and directly affect and halt that production um, from, from where we are and where we can make uh, material change. Okay, great. And, you know, uh, Richard, if you could just kind of lay out some of the actions that you guys have taken against Elbit Systems. Um, yeah, tell us what you guys have been doing. Okay, yeah. First of all, just maybe I can just pick up on, we don't see ourselves and the other people in Palestine Action as heroes at all. We're very much ordinary people. We've had people who are 18 years old. We've had people who are 74 years old take part in our actions. We seek in all of our actions to take direct actions. We don't appeal to governments. We don't do protests. Um, I myself, many years ago, went on uh, a march of over a million people in London to march against the Iraq war. Um, and it failed. Yeah, It didn't matter how many people were out there. Not, you know, The government didn't change. They still killed loads of people. I still fear too for well, Huda talks about her family in Iraq and what the occupying American and British forces did. So for us, marches and demonstrations and petitions are not enough. When we see what's happening day in, day out in Palestine, we much match the resistance that they call for. So our actions seek to always disrupt, expose, and ultimately destroy the, com the, the companies that profit from the Israeli apartheid regime. And therefore, 
Um, it started off with simple things. We stormed an office um, and graffitied in it um, and disrupted their business. And then more and more our actions have actually been going to the factories where these evil weapons and the evil um, parts, the drones are made. And we disrupt it by locking people to gates, by climbing on top of the building, by spraying red paint all over the building to signify the blood of the Palestinian people. But we use a natty trick by using uh, fire extinguishers, old ones recycled, of course, filled with um, um, blood red paint. Um, and more so as well, actually damaging the infrastructure of the building. Um, often people will level at us, how is committing criminal damage helping the cause? But for us, we don't, we don't see ourselves as criminal or causing criminal damage. We see ourselves as dismantling the Israeli war machine and the Israeli apartheid regime where it started. So our actions have been shutting those factories down for time, for, for one day at a time, for some up to three, four weeks once we've caused the damage so they can't go back in. Um, and they look, we, we purposely designed them to expose things and, 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 and get the message out as well. But they're really rather simple. It just means putting a ladder on the side of a building and climbing up onto it and, you know, taking a hammer or other things to cause damage. For us, the key thing is to disrupt that production line, disrupt the way that these evil weapons are made and to cost them in their pocket. These people, as Huda said before, these, you know, evil companies market their weapons unbelievably as tested on people before selling them elsewhere. And we will not allow that to happen. We will damage their business. We will cost them money. At the present count, we might have cost them up to 10 million pounds in increased security, in damage and lost production. Um, and we think this is the only way that will actually ultimately achieve any form of success for the Palestinian people and for other oppressed people, the Kashmiri people um, across the world that are the victims of these evil companies and their weapons. Absolutely. The, the military industrial complex, uh, no matter what uh, weapons manufacturing firm uh, or company it is, uh, reigns supreme when it comes to conflict the world over. Um, and it's fueling uh, British Empire, US Empire, um, and NATO conflicts around the world that is basically being fueled by bloodshed. I mean, that's what we're seeing. And so um, I commend you both for the courage that you have um, and setting the example of what true resistance and activism looks like in the West. Um, here in the United States, and I want Alan to kind of um, talk about this, in the United States, we don't see, I think, that kind of direct action against weapons manufacturers, like the kind of action you are taking. And I personally think it's perhaps because of uh, the brutality of the police state here in the United States. Police are armed to the T. Um, the media coverage also paints a lot of protesters, whether it's at Standing Rock, at Native, you know, Native tribes that are, you know, protecting their water and their land. They are labeled and painted as terrorists. Um, and so I'm just curious to know, how is the media coverage um, in the UK when it comes to covering um, you know, PAL action, Alan, if you can talk about this and you guys can also talk about your experience with this after he's done um, versus, um, you know, media coverage of like protest movements in the United States. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, when you look at Western media accounts of uh, clashes, uh, sorry, in, uh, in uh, Israel's occupation of Palestine, the word clash comes up a lot. It's a great word that they can use to kind of just uh refuse to apportion responsibility or um, or violence or uh, tone to anything. Um, what we saw, you know, with Israel's latest um, attack on Gaza uh, last month was that uh, media did describe it as a clash between Israel and Hamas. But of course, a much more accurate way of saying it would be uh, Israeli attack on Palestine. And that's always what uh, media tend to try and do. They try to frame it as a sort of Israel versus Hamas rather than a uh, Israeli government versus Palestinian people. They also tend to present Israel as responding to actions. It's right out of the Israeli government playbook, actually. They talk about how Israel is responding to Palestinian aggression, whether that's, you know, crazy concepts like terror balloon, or they talk about rockets as if they're the reincarnation of Saturn V or general dynamics finest. Um, they also tend to use things like, uh, they use tricks like using the active voice for when Israelis die versus the passive voice for when Palestinians die. So we'll see a lot of headlines saying things like five Israelis killed and or and 26 Palestinians die as if um, there's somehow, you know, a lack of um, clarity of, or, 
over where and why these Palestinians are dying. One great example of this is um, CNN and its Jerusalem bureau chief, Andrew Carey. Uh, at the height of the violence last month, he sent out a memo to all CNN staff saying that um, we have to remember whenever we're quoting the Gazan Ministry of Health, we have to write Hamas run in front of it. So what he was doing there was really trying to kill the messenger before uh, the message even got out there, which was that the Israeli government and the Israeli military were attacking Gaza and causing enormous amounts of casualties by undermining that, by saying, well, this number comes from Hamas. And there's also a complete lack of historical context within much of the reporting so that even people who are engrossed in this a lot of the time don't even know the basic facts about what happened in 1948 or 1967 to the point that studies show that um, that a lot of Americans seem to think that it's actually Palestine that's uh, occupying Israel and not the other way around. Um, yeah, when you said about um, how the UK and the US is a little bit different, as you said, the U.S. does have uh, armed police. The U.K. doesn't. The U.K. also has quite a long labor history and a radical movement, which do which has had a lot of success in direct actions. But I'd be hesitant in holding up the United Kingdom as like a bastion of liberty or a place where, you know, it's a particularly radical past. I mean, if we compare ourselves to the French who are constantly going on strike and constantly destroying things when their government or when big corporations do things that are against the wishes of the people, I think we start to look like, you know, uh, wallflowers in comparison. And then, of course, there's the fact that I think militarism has just become totally normalized in the U.S. to the point where we see advert advertisements for joining the army or even advertisements for uh, big weapons companies if you live in Washington, D.C. That sort of thing doesn't really happen outside of the, the center of the world empire. And so sometimes, um, yeah, if you live uh, in the eye of the hurricane, things can seem a little bit different to uh, whether you do in the rest of the world. And so Huda and Richard, you know, either one of you can answer to this. How has been the media coverage in the UK about your actions? Do they paint you guys as terrorists like they do here in the US? What is the media coverage like? I mean, does the BBC cover your actions and show it as, as like this heroic thing? So we do get quite a bit of media coverage and it has been quite a challenge to get that. Um, I think a lot of it is due to when you take direct action and we're on the roof of these buildings and you know we're dismantling their infrastructure, as we mentioned before, um, and covering them in red paint, it gets to a point where we get so much community support that it's very difficult for them to not cover our actions. Whether or not that's the best coverage we've got, probably not. And often there is a subtext, um, as you mentioned, of clashes and a bit of propaganda, basically, on the situation. Uh, but I think more and more when people see our actions, um, it, kind of, it kind of goes through all of that propaganda with the media. And I think people understand that we're taking on an Israeli arms company, we're testing weapons um, on Palestinians, a population where the majority of people are children. Um, and how can that be wrong? And we've actually had an immense amount of support. And recently, uh, unfortunately, it, 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 it happened when Gaza was being so brutally attacked yeah. that we have much more mainstream support, which, I mean, I was quite frustrated about, to be honest, because it's, it's just frustrating to know that it takes people being massacred for things to turn around. But nonetheless, you know, we have an opportunity now where we're meeting more and more people to further our campaign to shut Albert systems down and hopefully send a message to all companies who profit from um, Israel's apartheid regime. But I think more and more for us, we're seeing our social media has actually been the main tool in terms of getting the word out. Um, we were quite you know, surprised that it, on our Instagram, we went up in one week from 6,000 to uh, I think it was over 30,000 in a week. And that has been where most people have seen what we're doing and are joining us, and that is something that we have control over. Nonetheless, we do get many posts removed, and we have had our Facebook page removed. We've had um, eight different third-party platforms taken down, including fundraising pages, etc. Um, and although the media hasn't necessarily painted us as terrorists, my, myself and Richard have been um, stopped and interrogated for hours under Schedule 7 counterterrorism law on our activities in Palestine action. 
um, and and detained as such and had our laptops stolen um, by by the uh, terrorism police simply because we were active in Palestine action. And I think we we we've seen just three weeks after we launched Palestine action, there was a meeting between the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs and Dominic Raab, um, who's quite high up in the in the UK government, as I'm sure I'm sure you know. And they were basically discussing about um, and asking for the UK to crush us as a movement. And to be honest, when when I when we read that, we were absolutely elated because we said, you know, if they're having a meeting um, of this level to try and stop us, then we're really we're, we're building something which is really going to get under their skin to the point where they're taking that action. And having done this activism, you know, Palestine activism for years, um, I felt like you know we really hit the nail on the head where. Um, where we, we just we make the messaging very clear and simple as well. And because so much of the propaganda tries to make things look like it's two-sided or complicated, etc., we wanted yeah. to just simplify it from the get-go and go, these are war criminals, they're profiting from bloodshed and they must be shut down. Um, and so and, and to try and take away a bit of that propaganda that we get from the mainstream news and say, how can an arms company be doing a good thing in any in any sense? Um, and essentially, this is Israel's largest arms company. Everything we say that they do, which is, uh, is exactly what they promote, is the true face of Israeli apartheid. If they're testing weapons on children, they're providing Israel's military regime. We can we can cut through as much as possible their propaganda. Well, it's pretty incredible. I mean, London is the home, as I mentioned in my intro, to one of the largest uh, protests and marches for Palestine. So there's no question that there is uh, growing awareness about Israel's crimes um, against Palestinians. And, you know, people uh, are fed up around the world um, for Israeli support um, of, you know, Israeli apartheid. They want their governments to end that support. And so I think when people see what you guys are doing, I mean, they look at it as an example of, you know, this is, you guys are hitting it exactly where it hurts, which is at the weapons manufacturer's offices. Um, you know, Richard, I know members of Palestine Action, like you, you know, you kind of briefly mentioned that you guys have faced legal consequences, consequences uh, for your actions. Can you tell us about that and where, um, you know, what's happening now? What are you guys facing? So, yeah, so um, I think, and, and actually someone's just put in the, in the chat about staying anonymous. Most of our actions, especially yeah. the high profile ones, we know we're going to get nicked, arrested, yeah, at the end of it, yeah? There's no way you're going to escape from an arms factory if you cause four million pounds worth of damage like three people did and you're on a roof. Um, so there's a case of, and there's also a sacrificial element to that, which we see in bringing in people to the cause. Um, so the the, the, um, the crackdown we face, obviously people get arrested for that. They face charges of often criminal damage or aggravated trespass or conspiracy um, all of which face, uh, you know, the maximum um, period of time in jail for these things is counted as 10 years. We don't expect people to face that amount of time. And certainly in the U.S. context, I think um, U.S. courts are much more um, strict than the British courts on these. And we've seen movements in the U.S. in the past I can think of um, famous cases of people like Catholic workers who've often used red paint and spread paint on arms dealers and face quite high, high convictions. So we, 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 but I think the key thing for us is that there's never actually been a case go to court. Um, we've been going for this for nearly a year. Myself and Huda and others were involved prior to this, and we always had cases dropped um, the day before a trial. We see the trial and, um, and the court cases as a way of getting them, Elbit Systems, and the Israeli apartheid regime into court and exposing them as much as us. So we see that as part of our activism. Um, people have, I said, those are the sort of things that people have faced. We have had people held on remand, which is held before a hearing. Um, some people for up to a week. And we've actually got one person in prison at, as we speak who has been in prison for two weeks after taking action um, at um, a company called Arconic that made the cladding for Grenfell Tower, which was a disaster in the centre of London, um, where the company have basically had no repercussions despite the fact that they knew that they were making um, using cladding on materials that were very um, not fire retardant. Um, and they also made parts for Israeli warplanes. Um, so we have a person in prison at the moment who's been there for two weeks and is on hunger strike with four demands. Um, so we've seen this, but it's very difficult to tell us to tell what the actual final repercussions are because the state um, and the British police and we would say 
the establishment linked with the Israeli apartheid regime and Albert systems are playing some sort of political game. And as we've seen the more of a mass movement come about this, rather than it be a niche um, kind of interest, then, then the state seem to have backed off slightly with regards to this because they don't want to you know, imprison people too quickly and then crush movements. And, and, and they couldn't do that because so many people come on, on board. And we actually see more and more people going, I don't care about the consequences. This is ha- happening to people in Palestine now. If I have to face prison time now, I would really rather not to, not, but I, w- I will do this and face that. Um, and certainly most people who take Palestine action actions know they're going to face 24 hours in a police cell before being released and entering the court system. Um, we have seen trumped up charges. I'm on charges of blackmail, um, which is a maximum se- maximum um, sentence of 14 years in prison. And that's blackmail for saying if a company wouldn't evict Elbit, um, that we could go on hunger strike or or activists would continue to target them. Um, so we have seen those trumped up charges, but it's very difficult to tell the political game they're playing in the background and, and what's exactly happening on that. Um, and we also have this, there's also like little chinks you see in the armour that fill us with, um, you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to sort of hold out for the British state and the British courts to, to look after us, but we see little chinks. So I myself was in um, in Westminster Magistrates Court for the answer the blackmail charges, and I was on strict curfew for bail conditions. And the um, prosecuting attorney got up and said, oh, I don't think he should be on bail, to, bail conditions at all. And afterwards, our barrister came up to him and went, don't worry, he's pro-Palestine. That's why he asked for you to have no conditions. So we see those little chinks happening. Um, and those are the moments when we start to think, actually, we're getting somewhere. And I suppose I just sum this bit up by going, which ties into the press thing. Um, there's a general principle with direct action and other movements. First of all, they ignore you, then they oppress you, and then you win. Um, and hopefully we're aiming towards that third act. Okay, so you think you're in the second stage right now. And, uh, yeah, we're moving to the third. We're moving to the third. I do think that you guys are winning, and I think there's even a huge shift within governments uh, and politicians that are kind of, you know, I don't know if it's out of a good heart or if it's just out of total embarrassment that they don't want to be on the wrong side of history because it's so obvious that Israel's an apartheid regime, just like South Africa was an apartheid regime. And there was just so much global support to dismantle the apartheid regime in South Africa. We're seeing that wave happening right now um, around the world. And, you know, you mentioned um, uh, the brother who is on a hunger strike for two weeks. I know that his identity is private to the public. I want to talk about the story um, of, you know, with the Grenfell Tower and um, the company Arconic that makes the cladding um, and its ties to Israeli weapons. Can one of you guys talk about um, that connection and more about Arconic's ties with Israeli, um, you know, weapons and warplanes? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Arconic is, as we mentioned briefly before, is the company which essentially provides the cladding for the Grenfell Tower, um, where just over four years ago, 72 people were killed in a fire. And despite the company having prior knowledge um, and understanding that they should not be um, selling that type of cladding to tower blocks because exactly this, this kind of thing could happen where a lot of people will die uh, due to a fire, they continue to sell on this cladding. And in fact, there are many tower blocks across the UK who still have this cladding to this day um, here. And Despite and the same, the very same company, which I think says a lot, the same company uh, actually build and provide materials for Israel's fighter jets, which are used to kill and massacre Palestinians, um, especially in Gaza. And we saw these fighter jets be used in the recent um, attacks on the people of Gaza. Um, And I think it's quite uh, an appropriate target in the sense that these very same companies who have disregard for human life when it comes to people living in London have the same disregard for human life when it comes to people in Palestine and essentially all boils down to trying to make a profit rather than uh, regarding human life or following any kind of moral code. Um, And despite there being a government inquiry for four years where all of this evidence has come up about Arconic, emails between their um, senior staff about knowing about these, uh, about exactly what this cladding could do, N- nothing has happened to a single uh, senior staff member at Alconic or the company at all. There have been no repercussions, no accountability, 
and essentially it's 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 similar to exactly how our governments continue to not just ignore what's happening to Palestinians, but to enable it and profit from uh, the oppression of the Palestinian people and people across the world, um, and how governments essentially protect these companies. If it's right. through doing these priorities, which actually no repercussions are brought about. And uh, for Palestine Action, we saw the four-year um, anniversary of Grenfell as the appropriate time to seek justice for those people killed in Grenfell and to seek justice for the people killed in Palestine and to highlight just how these companies are, are basically all around us. Um, and I think you know that a lot of these actions that we do as well highlight just how close to home it is to people. Um, and often people don't realize that those companies are there until we're on top of the building and highlighting exactly what is happening. Do they just look like a normal business in a normal industrial park where actually those components and the products that they are building are causing havoc and destruction in other parts of the world. Well, and a lot of these major companies that are, you know, the ones that are building the buildings, they're the ones that um, own the real estate. They're all tied to the government and to politicians and the companies, the one, you know, the weapons manufacturers and, uh, they're the ones responsible for the profits that all goes back to the 1% billionaire class. So it's all tied, but there's like this tangled web where it's all tied um, together. Um, Alan, I'm curious to know uh, about the changing of support within the UK uh, altogether within government. If you can, if you know of any politicians or maybe if there's like a wave of change that's taking place in the UK, that's moving in the direction of, uh, supporting Palestinian human rights. Do you see that wave happening? Uh, well, compared to the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, our parliament is certainly a lot more progressive on Palestine in certain ways. Certainly uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party uh, moved towards a much more pro-Palestinian uh, position. Uh, parts of the UK are more progressive than others. I know that, uh, for instance, my old city, Glasgow, the council, the city chambers flies the Palestinian flag regularly above their building. There's a lot of support for Palestine in Ireland and Northern Ireland, right. particularly among the Catholic population who often see their struggle with independence and the occupation, as they see it, of Northern Ireland as to be fundamentally linked with the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So you'll very often see Palestinian flags at, um, say, Celtic football matches or in uh, Irish football matches as well. There's a lot of uh, iconography and a lot of uh, links between the two. Uh, however, if you actually look at the Tory government that's in power right now, Boris Johnson uh, continually says that he's you know, got unwavering support for Israel. And of course, the UK government, uh, Israel is one of their favorite clients in terms of actually selling weapons. Not only that. There's a small amount of YouTubes actually stationed in Israel who are there primarily to give training and various uh, forms of support to the IDF. So the UK government is actually directly uh, complicit in a lot of the crimes that Israel is carrying out across the Middle East. And so while there is a lot of uh, widespread uh, public disenchantment with what the, the government is doing, there's still not that sort of spark which is uh, creating this mass movement to change that. Well, and you know, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn at the very beginning. And like here in the U.S., we have people like uh, Bernie Sanders and we have people that are in the squad like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandra Cortez. And they all kind of take different stances on uh, Israel and Palestine. But like Bernie Sanders, for example, he's actually given a platform within mainstream me uh, news when it comes to Palestine. He's he heavily critiqued, of course, um, but also, um, you know, he kind of gives a more liberal Zionist support to Palestine, where he says, you know, Palestinians are humans, they deserve human rights, but Israel has a right to defend itself. And I feel like this is really problematic um, because obviously it's a very much a liberal Zionist talking point because it upholds Israel as a legitimate uh, state that, you know, has a right to defend itself against a, you know, defenseless population. He does never, he doesn't actually describe Israel as an occupying force. He doesn't support BDS. And yet a lot of progressives in the United States stand behind Bernie Sanders' stance uh, in that. Whereas people like Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian, and Ilhan Omar, they'll support like a one-state solution and they'll support BDS. And they're constantly being targeted in smear campaigns and called anti-Semitic. Um, 
And even Bernie Sanders, even though he's a liberal Zionist, he's still called like a self-hating Jew for taking that stance, for even just saying, just for uttering the words, Palestinians uh, deserve human rights. So I'm just curious, um, you know, Richard and Huda, how has the anti-Semitism card played um, in terms of like affecting pro-Palestine support in the UK? What do you like, how do you guys feel about this? So for me, I was quite, before Palestine Action, I was involved in a lot of different ways of trying to you know, pursue the Palestinian cause, and particularly an arms embargo between the UK and Israel. And I was quite active within the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. And it was actually my mum, who's Iraqi, who told me to join the Labour Party, which I was quite surprised about, because obviously it was Labour who went um, and supported the war and uh, invasion in Iraq, um, so to speak. And when Jeremy Corbyn came in, there was a new lease of hope um, that this would be a channel where we could actually facilitate and create change, um, not just to people in the UK, but for people um, in the Middle East and and across the world, and especially in Palestine, because he's a strong supporter of the Palestinian people. And it was actually in 2019 where we saw for the first time ever that there was um, an arms embargo between the UK and Israel on the Labour Manifesto. And then obviously the anti-Semitism smears and, and other attacks on Corbyn um, basically destroyed all, all hope of that being the, the channel where we would get that change um, that we needed. So essentially, you know, it had catastrophic consequences in terms of, you know, we were quite close to a potential of an arms embargo and then it just, it just went out the window um, basically overnight. Basically, and- the anti-Semitism card just hijacks the whole thing. It just hijacks the, all the activism that takes place, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's, it, it's quite disturbing to see just how much it penetrated um, British politics and yeah. how it actually distracted our own conversations when we were talking about activism and what we can do for the Palestinian people um, because we were constantly trying to defend ourselves about not being anti-Semitic. And against these smears, we actually lost track about focusing on you know, on, on what we needed to create that change. So it took us backwards um, quite a lot, which was obviously the intention of all of the anti-Semitism smears um, during that time. And I think, and it obviously is continuing as a tactic. At the same time, for us, starting Palestine Action, that was exactly why we, you know, for a number of reasons, where we said we were going for Israel's arms trade, we're going for Albert's system, we're going to make the message clear. This is what Israel's, largest arms company does, they test weapons on Palestinians. Um, They're building weapons here which will be used to kill and harass and destroy people's lives across the world. It couldn't be any more simpler. Um, And actually at the start there were some attempts to accuse us of being anti-Semitic and I think it came from one Friends of Israel page and there was about a thousand quote tweets going, this is an arms company, it's ridiculous. And actually for us, focusing on that and keeping the focus on the arms trade, which is the face of Israel's apartheid regime, um, has managed to keep us clear of, of, of having to defend ourselves on that. Because I think to most ordinary people, um, attacking an arms company is in no way racist. Um, because obviously, you know, what, what Israel does is extremely racist towards the Palestinian people. It's the whole apartheid regime is built on racism um, and, and testing weapons and using Gaza's laboratory is, is one of the most sickening forms of um, which manifest under an apartheid regime, um, which we've highlighted. And I think they've really failed to attack us based on, based on those, um, you know, allegations. The only thing I would add to that, pretty much sure. the, only, the only time that it's been screamed in our faces is by the cops in interview, yeah, screaming at me, you're not an anti-racist, you're an anti-Semite. And, and it was kind of just repeating the tropes, the right-wing tropes. And um, and in a way, it just it kind of like makes you smile. And, and as Huda said, the thing for us is not to get bound up in that because more and more people, younger people, uh, have joined us because of the activism who haven't been particularly, you know, necessarily in, um, focused on the Palestinian cause. And they get the simplistic message of it. And is we wouldn't want to get sidetracked. We can let the police shout us shout us about that all they like. And we haven't. We've purposely sought not to get drawn into those political debates that take yeah. us away from the mission and keep things simple um, about this 
is an oppressed group um, and oppressed people who have weapons tested on them. And, and to get that in brings in people from movements who wouldn't probably have touched it before. Um, right. And I think there's a really, there's a great page in one of Angela Davis books where she talks about the Palestinian struggle and say it's been over-intellectualized by the left and causes that problem. And I think this anti-Semitic slur can be a real danger um, if people go down it too much defensively and rather come out on the front foot. I agree with you. I think that, you know, when we are cornered, we kind of tend to get in that defensive mode and then we have to sit there and explain ourselves over and over again. And the whole action or cause that we are fighting for gets lost in this conversation. And I think that's what happened with people like Ilhan Omar in the United States. She was so targeted in such a heavy smear campaign and called anti-Semitic for bringing attention to how much influence the Israeli lobby has that the whole conversation became about anti-Semitism now. Forget that Israel has this huge, heavy hand in, in U.S. government and politics in the United States. Forget how much um, these politicians are getting paid by uh, APAC, the American-Israeli Affairs uh, Committee. Forget all that. Now it's all about uh, this anti-Semitism trope, like you mentioned. And, you know, you guys, you know, made it very clear that you don't believe that these protest movements are effective. They're important, but not effective in actually stopping action. I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, when when Israel was bombing Gaza very heavily, like I live in Minneapolis, um, and there was action all across the country. Yes, it took all of that bloodshed to get people out on the streets to take action. But when Israel stopped bombing Gaza, everybody just kind of disappeared and went back to their daily lives and just had dinner and back to their families. And it was as if nothing had happened. And so I'm curious to know what kind of advice do you give people on what true activism looks like? I know you described what you guys do, but like if you were to have a conversation with somebody who says, yeah, I'm you know, going to get on the streets and protest, like what would you tell them? Um, yeah, I think I'd say a few things on this. Um, to directly answer the question, I think there's many ways that we can take it a step further. And often it is highlighting there are companies out there who are profiting from the bloodshed of the Palestinian people um, who are all around us and actually targeting that and causing disruption to that uh, financial flow, which they gain from the bloodshed, which makes it unprofitable for them or a negative thing for them to actually um, be, be working with Israel's apartheid regime in any way is exactly what we need to do. If we had 100,000 people storm different offices across the country, um, then then they would have to be forced to make an, make an impact. And sometimes it's as simple as just walking into one of these buildings or these businesses and actually saying, we're going to sit here um, and we're going, to, we're going to disrupt this business and we're going to go in day in and day out and we're going to have clear targets. And for us, that's something that we took on, which was the clear targets. We didn't want to spread our resources too thin because there are so many companies out there who are facilitating Israel's regime and... Um, and in order to win and be effective, it is better to be focused. And although there are different repercussions in different countries, I think there's also a diversity of tactics that people can use. Um, things like blockading different businesses um, across across the US, as, as, as we've done in, in the UK in different actions. And I think often when people look at our actions, they only necessarily see the people who are on the roof causing high level amounts of damage. But actually, we've had all sorts of different types of actions take place from people chaining themselves to gates, lying in front of the of the gates of the business, which actually um, is very effective at occupying and disrupting that space. But I think rather than appealing, you know, there was there is little to no point of going into a park um, and and calling for freedom of Palestine when there was no clear demand and we're not directly affecting anybody who's actually um, you know profiting from from the oppression of those people and I think for us direct action is um, not appealing to government or not appealing to a middleman to create the change that we want to see it's envisaging that future that we want to see and making it reality so in our case it is saying we're not going to appeal anymore to the government to have an arms embargo we're going to stop their arms export and we're going to stop Israel's arms production ourselves using our own bodies because they have ignored us time and time again and at the end of the day people are dying they are suffering under Israel's regime people in Kashmir are suffering all across the world and much of of our privilege in the west is built off the oppression of people across the world 
And that requires us having some form of sacrifice and understanding those links and being organized and being effective and to not keep appealing to the same murderers. Because, you know, for me and for us, the government and the politicians who killed one people in Iraq, who continue to massacre people across the world, who facilitate Israel's apartheid regime, are complicit in murder. And they're not going to change because we ask them or we shout at them, etc. Because for them, you know, we see it all the time. We see 200,000 people protest for Palestine and then 200,000 people protest for another thing or another thing. And for them, it's, it's, just, it's just noise. And, and I've, I've, we've grown sick of it here. Um, we saw one million people protest against the Iraq war. And, and what bigger show of democracy could that be that they just went against all of that and went and killed one million people Whereas maybe if 10% of those people went to those arms companies and stopped the, stopped the production or disrupted them or blockaded uh, the export of those weapons, then we could have had a significant disruption to the, to the um, business of bloodshed, essentially. Absolutely. And oh, go ahead, yeah. Richard. I'll just add two things to that. I think when you ask the question about what would you ask somebody if they went out on the streets, uh, say for yeah. the first time, I would kind of say they should ask two questions of themselves. Do you actually want to win is the first one, right? Are these just performative things, yeah? And, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's stuff around solidarity. and um, But I think that would be linked to my second question. If it was you who were the oppressed people, what would you be asking for people to do? Would it be enough that they stand at the gates and light, light a candle? You know, that, that's a, a, a part, yeah? Or do you want them to go in and tear it down? Um, and I think those two questions must be asked all the time. And, 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 it, and we're not sitting superiorly asking that because we ask ourselves those two questions day in, day out. Um, when, as I mentioned before, Palestine Action, both me and Hudra have taken action against Elbit Systems before. And there was a small group of us in one area. We would shut it down once every six months, once every year. And, and even then we'd be breaking the law. We often wouldn't get arrested and we'd go home feeling good about ourselves. But actually, that's not enough. It needs to be sustained. It needs to happen day in, day out. The people who suffer um, the consequences in Palestine, they're not just suffering when there's bombs going. They have to go. They have to live that life of having drones fly over their heads every day, of hearing those sounds that fill them with PTSD, of having checkpoints, and that's not enough. And I think people have to ask themselves those questions constantly. Do you actually want to win, or are you going to go out and fly your flags and feel good about yourself? And, and is, are you doing enough? What more can you do? in your situation, um, whatever that is. Um, I just want to add a quick point to this as well. And I think all in all, it's not only is there a moral duty to take um, action, which is disruptive, but there's also a massive opportunity. The fact that we do live in the West where a lot of these weapons are built, where a lot of these companies do operate, where they do have their headquarters, where we do actually have an opportunity to disrupt that kill line and affect their profits. Um, and I and I think when it's 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 as clear as you know if we saw people get killed right in front of us or someone beat up someone right in front of us, most of us would do something or try and get in the way or stop them from doing that. We wouldn't necessarily wait for someone else to come and stop them for us. And I think if we didn't have if we just took things as humanity as, as morality, it would be insane that we would have these these companies building weapons where essentially it can be an hour down the road from us. Um, and actually those drones or those parts we can see in real time be used in Gaza. Um, and for us, it's, that's an opportunity to disrupt that kill line and affect Israel's apartheid regime from where we are. Can I just add one other thing? Sorry, oh, sorry. Right. No, right. um, one other thing I would say is um, at this time, and some people specifically, yeah, they're fed up with established institutions, whether they be political parties, pressure groups, NGOs that have failed us on the climate, that have failed us on Palestine, that have failed us on so many things. Young people and people have this all the time. We have been approached by lots of individuals and by groups going, why am I stood outside the Israeli embassy shouting at people who are never going to agree to dismantle yeah. their war? Thing, yeah, People understand this. Movements such as Extinction Rebellion and other movements that have galvanised lots of young people, lots of disenfranchised people, lots of people, postmodern people who just are not ever going to get involved in standard campaigning, um, are enlivened by this. Um, and we need to appeal to them and, and get them out doing things without creating bureaucracies and structures and asking for us to give ask permission off the police where we can walk on our protest. 
which is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, um, I, for me, that's not a protest. It's people understand this, and 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 really, it's an opportunity for more and more groups, us and other groups, to go. Okay, what can we do? How can we go more? What can we push? And not to fall into that trap um, in in our own country of it often being white elderly middle class people who run these things um and, and have a and have a system behind it but going we need to be more fluid we need to respond but we also need to build these movements from the bottom up um and and, and respect things you know i'm a council estate lad from a working class lad and respecting that people i mean we just don't get involved in things like ngos who confuse confuse everything the hell out of us yeah it's a simple issue there's an oppressed people we feel oppressed let's go and do something practical about it Absolutely. And we just have we just have about, uh, you know, seven minutes left. Alan, if you can briefly kind of compare uh, U.S. response versus British response to protests. I know that it's very different because in the U.S., the police are armed to the T. And so uh, I'm just curious to know if people in the U.S. could kind of take these kinds of actions without fear of retribution. Well, there's always fear of retribution wherever you are, even if you're in the most liberal social democratic place in the world, like here, you know, doing a protest in Sweden about climate or something. Um, certainly, as I said before, the uh, American police do are, you know, trained to use guns. The UK police do not carry guns generally, only a very small amount of them do, and they have to have special qualifications and licenses for so you don't really see them. Uh, but generally, I think uh, these sorts of protests can be universalized. You have to really think about the consequences and what you're trying to achieve, of course. Um, ultimately, though, uh, I think uh, certainly these sorts of protests need to be coordinated in a way that might um, might be a bit more effective. Sometimes these sort of things are a one-day-only event, and then people go back to their ordinary lives. They're not really building a sort of sustained movement. And uh, what our guests were talking about, you know, in talking about extinction rebellion and stuff like that i think there's a real um there's a real need to sort of link these sorts of things up and really talk about the root cause of all of this stuff which is our societal uh which is the way society is made up because ultimately i don't think there's going to be peace in palestine there's not going to be uh justice for people in the global south suffering and there's not going to be you know a resolution to the climate problem until all of these things are changed at the same time via a broad political movement which uh, acknowledges all of these things are, you know, structural defects within our modern capitalist system and uh, agrees to sort of move forward on all of these things at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't I don't like to be the pessimist in all of this, but the truth is, is that, um, you know, U.S. empire reigns supreme in the world today. And so while we may, uh, through these actions, put pressure on these weapons manufacturers and even through our protest movements and through our organizing and through the BDS movement, we may put enough pressure to dismantle apartheid. It's very possible because we saw it happen um, in South Africa. And I do see that there's a global wave of support for Palestinian human rights, which is really, really incredible. It's very inspiring. But I think, Alan, and what you guys are saying is true, is that we have to really get to the core of these issues because they're all related. This is not just about Israeli apartheid um, and its occupation of Palestine, but it's about dismantling the whole entire uh, military industrial complex that is, uh, you know, shedding blood all over the world uh, through its sanctions wars, through its occupation, its military, ex you know, um, adventurism and plundering third world countries of their minerals and their resources. And so it's really, really all um, connected. Um, I, yeah, you know, just, I just want to, oh, go ahead. Just one thing on that. I mean, the good news, Huda said, like, we live in the global north, most of us watching this, yeah. which means we have far more leeway to do things like this. And we actually also have a lot more power than we realize. You know, if you go to places in the global south, which have far fewer resources, places like Bolivia, where there's been a movement to, uh, you know, a, a grassroots movement to change society for the better, which beat back a coup, they don't talk about how powerless they are, even though a lot of them are, you know, almost don't have two pennies to rub together. They were able to organize and come together to do things. So I think a lot of the time we feel pessimistic, but actually yeah. we just feel kind of, we should be galvanized by the amount of potential power that we do have. I mean, I'm just pessimistic about, you know, 
just U.S. empire. You know, it's just such a strong, it's, it's, its tentacles are spread all across the world and every little thing. Uh, but I do have hope for a movement of change. There is absolutely no question that, you know, what you guys are doing is creating a, you know, it's creating a wave that eventually is going to cause a huge, you know, uh, change of structure within within our society. So I really appreciate what you guys have been doing uh, with Pal Action. It's a huge inspiration. Um, just listening to you guys is just you know it it really touched my heart. Like this is how we need to all be thinking at all times. You know how can we help the oppressed around the world? How can we stand up for those who don't have a voice, who don't um, have the strength or courage? And you guys do have that strength and courage. So I really appreciate uh, you guys being here. So. Um, that is a wrap for today's Mintcast live stream. I know you guys have another live stream coming up. So just a reminder to everybody to subscribe to our YouTube channel and we will extract the audio from this and turn it into a podcast as well. But you can find it on YouTube and on Facebook and on Twitch. So do you guys want to add anything else before I let you go? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, Alan, for joining us today. Have a good day.